three, two, one. Do you hear an echo? EFR is connected. Let's go. Here comes Alvin. Alvin! Alvin! Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell As would we, as would we, and man, it's changing. Somebody's going to change it, and it's changing in a direction we'd rather not have. We try and alter that, maybe nudge it off in another direction, and sometimes we even have a little success. Uh, those are the things we talk about around here. It's a special one of these platform, this free speech platform kind of days because it's Friday here on the long three-day New Year's Eve of breaching us over into no telling what all uh over the next couple of days and usually we've got brent i don't know if he's with us or not yet but if not i'm sure he'll join us shortly because i think he likes being here too uh roger sales your host here brent Winter's is going to be tagging in along sometime uh as i said it's the friday edition we call our little uh, platform here the radio ranch our little get together and today is the 29th of december 2023 about to close the door on that year this year uh setup year as tumultuous as it's been the foreboding for what's coming this one doesn't even hold a candle to what's coming it looks like folks uh and of course we're gonna all experience it together so um, I was, uh, we're talking about new year platform. right before we went on go, Oh, we got to hold on. We got platforms, man. Have platforms. we got platforms. platforms? We got platforms. You want platforms? We got platforms. Don't we Paul? <laughs> yes, we do. Um, actually, I think I'm going to send you a stuffed animal. I'm going to send you platform the platypus. Maybe that'll, that'll be a memory key. You'll see that his little like fuzzy platypus. butt sitting over on your table or something like that. I like platypuses. They're cool. <laughs> they are. They are. Um, okay, we are on Eurofolkradio.com. That, of course, is the flagship. Thank you, Paul English. We're on Global Voice Radio Network. Uh, that is radio.globalvoiceradio.net. Uh, those links are on exposethematrix.com as well as a bunch of other links, lots of other information. We're also on homenetwork.tv and freedomnation.tv, thanks to WDRN Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. We're on uh, Go Live TV and StreamLife.tube. That's part of the StreamLife network. Thank you, StreamLife. And last but not least, certainly not least, 106.9 WBOU-FM in Chicago. Thank you, WBOU Productions. Yep. And that's yep. about it, Raj. Yep, they get to come out of the bunker for an hour a day, a couple of days a week here joining us. We're always glad to have them. Uh, I'm assuming Brent hadn't made it yet, so I'm going to launch off under this thing oh, we are talking about now. before anyway. Oh, he is. Okay, well, he'll be interested in this. Um, morning, Brent. Uh, we uh, we have uh, some unusual traditions here in Ecuador. I think there's one other island. I'm not sure which one in the Caribbean that has uh, one of these. And uh, here, a Sunday night on New Year's Eve, they get 
Well, they do a couple of things. Uh, this week, as you go around uh, on the main streets, there'll be uh, little kiosks selling different figurines. They're paper mache and uh, different characters, sports characters, Superman, or you know, everything under the sun, okay? And they're painted up, very colorful. And uh, they also sell a mask. And the idea is on New Year's Eve, you either take one of these that you purchase of some other type of figure, or you take the mask and you build your uh, an epiphy of uh, ep of like a body with a, with this mask and your clothes and stuff it with straw and then you burn that on new year's eve and the symbolism is you're burning away all your troubles and your cares of the previous year for the new year that's the symbolism so but it's uh, it, unusual uh but the other one is on that night they have these men that dress up like women and it's like the the dead widows. I'm not sure the whole story behind it, but here are these groups of men that dress up audaciously like women, obviously make believe and for the function of whatever this is they're symbolizing. And they, when you're driving around, and these streets are not normally straight like you'd imagine because of the topography in the mountains. You've got a lot of curves and this, that, and the other, and uh, everything has walls. Uh, because that's the Spanish culture. And a lot of times it's difficult to get your bearings because you're just going through curves with walls on both, both sides and there's no distinguishing feature that you can go, oh, yeah, I remember that yellow house. I was here before, you know, that kind of thing. But as you go through these streets on this uh, night, these men dressed like women, and you come around a corner or something, they'll pull a rope or a chain up uh, on the street and stop your car, and you're supposed to give them a quarter, 50 cents or something, and they let the chain down and you get to pass. Uh, so that's another uh, unusual thing. So just a couple of things this weekend. It, it bodes you to stay in. You know? <laughs> so anyway, just want to start that out. It's New Year's weekend. We were talking about it before we went on the air, Brent. And so uh, I just thought it's, it's interesting, part of the culture here, you know. How you doing, buddy? Oh, all right. You know, that's all. Thanks, Roger. That's all part of Romanism. And Probably. And yeah. That's how, yeah, and that's how the... The Mexicans in Arizona got slaughtered, and the fellow that slaughtered them uh, gained a name there that has become part of Americana, and his name was Geronimo. Oh. The reason they called him Geronimo, that wasn't the name he had when he was born. Of course, he was Apache, but the reason they called him Geronimo was because he hated the Mexicans. He hated them bad, worse than he did the Anglos, which he went to war with, too, but uh, the Mexicans had done some really nasty stuff to his people uh, beyond even what uh, the Anglos had done or would do, but it was bad. And so he wasn't a stupid man. He has to plan to wipe them out. So what he did was he knew that they were having a feast, a Roman feast, a Babylonish kind of a feast at one of the villages. And it was the feast of Jerome. The Feast of Jerome. Uh, Jerome was the man that translated the Bible from the original mm -hmm. into Latin. And that translation commissioned by the Pope about 400 A.D. is still the official final word 
according to Rome, <clears throat> what the Bible says. That's rather silly to take a translation and say it's the final word when you've got something else available, but that's what they did. Well, Jerome did that, and he did a good job. He did a good job, and the translation was worthwhile because so many people spoke Latin, of course. He, the Pope of Rome did the same thing that King James I did. King James I said, there's all these people translating the Bible into English. We need one official translation, and I'll be the one that'll say how it works. And we'll pay, we'll use taxpayers' dollars to do it. Of course, if you use taxpayer dollars to do it, that means you got the money to promote the thing. And that means also that it will be translated in such a way that benefits government. And that's fact, the fact of the matter. And that's what happened with King James. And that's what happened. The same scenario played out with the Pope of Rome, who was essentially the emperor of Europe, pretty much at that time, even at that early day, not in a way he would be later, but a lot of influence and power, and he commissioned Jerome to do that. And Jerome did it, and then all the other translations didn't have money to promote themselves, and the Latin Vulgate became the Bible of the Western world for about a thousand years till the Reformation, and it still is of the Roman Church. But they were commemorating Jerome at the Feast of Jerome, and at a certain time during that feast, a man was supposed to come in dressed in a costume and a mask like Jerome. Well, this fellow they later called Jerome, and Geronimo is a, in a particular dialect is the way that they pronounce Jerome. Geronimo is Jerome. But he came. He, he knew when that fellow was supposed to come in dressed up like that, so he either kidnapped him or murdered him. I forget which it is, and but he, he took the costume and dressed up, and then he had all of his, his boys with him, and at the certain signal, after he walked in with his costume on, they were supposed to slaughter all the Mexicans and the Roman priesthood with him, of course, that was there. And they did. And ever since after that, he was called Jerome because he dressed up, dressed up like Jerome. You say, well, oh, that, that isn't related to, yeah, he's a pretty rough character. I've never heard, I've never even heard in anybody intimate any parts of that story right there. You know what else he used to do? He was a fascinating character. They used to, of course, he was young and, and capable, healthy, but they, of course, the stealth, stealth was the way of the red man from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. he, didn't, he didn't fight like the Europeans. You know, you line up and shoot each other down like dogs. They didn't do that. They weren't that stupid. <laughs> so. They, you know, hide behind trees and rocks. And we picked up on that real quick after we got here. But um, the other thing that he used to do, clever, um, <clears throat> he liked to sur surprise the cargo trains. Now, a lot of cargo went west and uh, railroads were all over the east, but they didn't build them much out west. They did eventually, but even now they're not as the west is not covered with railroads like the east is or was. So the wagon, the heavy cargo wagons, uh, the Calistogas, is that what they call them? Those great big ones, you know, that had mm -hmm. a team of at least six, if not. Right. Canistogas. Wasn't it Canistogas? It seems like that. Okay. Canistoga yeah. wagons. That's what my yeah. old way back memory says that. Anyway, go ahead with your Back story. when we were learning about this stuff as children, they, they used to teach me this stuff about the pioneers and the American West uh -huh. Well, at any rate, uh -huh. uh, he would lay down. He'd got his, get his boys. They knew they'd have their scouts. They knew where the 
the cargo train was coming from and they'd get up a few miles ahead of it and they'd dig dig uh, furries or little graves in the road and they'd lay down them in, in them and cover themselves with dirt and then they'd have a little reed stuck in their mouth so they could lay there under the dirt and nobody'd see them and they'd do it right in the middle they knew the wagon tracks would be on both sides see and uh, they did it in such a way that apparently the horses wouldn't hurt them I don't know how that worked. I never understood exactly, but the story is they'd lay down and then right after the train passed over top of them, they'd get up and start climbing aboard from the back of the, the last wagon. And then they'd mm-hmm. kill the driver and then they'd put a, a driver in his place. Then they'd crawl up to the wagon in front of him and they'd cr- climb up on the back as they crept along and they'd kill the driver and the sh- whoever's riding. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they'd, they'd steal the whole blasted wagon train. And they got real good at it. Now, they got more sophisticated than that. Uh, He did the same thing, Roger. The Geronimo did the same thing that history plays it out over and over. He did the same thing that the Scottish Reavers did in Britain. The Reavers, you know, they were the fellows that they got to calling them Wigamores. They were the fellows, the the clans along the border, the, the lowlander Scots, the most notoriously the Armstrongs. And then uh, the Douglases, and then uh, the Maxwells. Those are the ones I remember reading about. And there were a lot of them, but the Armstrong, led by a fellow named Johnny, Johnny Armstrong. And Johnny, uh, he could put almost 1,500 men in the saddle, fully armed, and they were tough. They weren't conscripts. They, they were doing it for profit. And this king, the king of England, was always afraid of Johnny Armstrong. They finally persuaded him into negotiating with him and that was a stupid thing on his part that he did it. Of course, they just took him and then they hung him, cut him down before he was dead and gutted him and burned his guts in front of his face and cut off his private parts and burned those. And then they, it's called drawn and quartering. It's a brutal way. Yes. Yeah. Then they take horses and tie it to your arms and legs and jerk you apart. Right. And then they right. saw your body up into pieces and throw it in a, in a, in a barrel someplace. And, put a note on it saying that this is to be disposed of at the King's pleasure. I think that's the way it goes. <laughs> but these reavers, what they would do is they would uh, steal cattle on the English side and horses. You know, there's a difference between a cattle rustler and a horse thief. And I don't know why in our English tongue, we don't say horse rustlers, but we don't, we say horse thieves and cattle. Mm-hmm. Rustlers. At any rate, they'd wrestle cattle and, and thieve horses. And then they'd, they'd sell them on the Scottish side. And then they'd, steal them back later from their fellow Scotsmen, and then they'd sell them on the English side, and this just go back and forth and back and forth. Well, Geronimo, he also perfected that art. He had to have a way to fund his activities, and that's the way he did it. Uh, the uh, uh, Arm, what was his name? Not Johnny Armstrong, but Geronimo. <laughs> Geronimo, eventually, this is a more fascination about the life of the man, of course, he was captured at the efforts of a fellow named Al, Al Cyber, or Sieber, I think is the way the Germans pronounce it. He was a German immigrant, and he had a, a right-hand translator by the name of uh, Tom Horn. And Tom Horn was from a family of German immigrants that had settled in central Missouri. And so Tom and, and Sieber got along real good. But Sieber would use, he came, he's the one that came up, he was a scout. He wasn't an officer. He was high, the army 
hired him because he knew how to handle the 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 tribes, the red men tribes. And he said one time, somebody asked him, how do you get these these men, these these tribes, these tribesmen, these engines, as they called them back then, how do you get them to do what you want to do, want, want them to do? He said, well, I've been at this for several years and I've discovered there's only one way to do it. And he, they said, what's that? Well, I, you got you to gotta think the way they do. He said, if you tell one of these fellows to do something uh, or you'll kill him uh, and uh, he doesn't do it, you'd better kill him because if you don't kill him, the others will think that there's no consequences. And they said, had one fella come to him, yet yeah, teenage boy who was these, these, he, he used the Kiowa and the, the Pumas, I believe it was. And I'm not remembering exactly. It's been so many years since I delved into this, but I used to read all the old newspaper articles about it, but he would use them. They hated the Apache. See all the engines hated each other and murdered mm-hmm. each other. You know, and enslaved each other. You know, they held held each other as slaves and bought and sold. And they hated uh, the Apache, so he used the ones that hated. And the Kiowa, I believe, was one of them. But these these Kiowa would spend an entire ten hours of darkness of night to crawl less than fifty yards. Their their patience at again what they honored was not face up with an enemy and beat him in a fair fight. They had no concept of that. What they honored was a man's ability to be deceitful and to be stealthily when you fight with your enemy, to lure him, lie to him. It was the same system as the as Islam. Everybody's your enemy, so you're entitled to lie to them, and there's no such thing as a fair fight. There's mm-hmm. no story. Well, that's the way they operated, and of course, the government found out they couldn't defeat and deal with the red man in any way, except to try to use his tactics on tactics on him. But they couldn't get the white men to do it. The white men wanted a fair fight uh, if they could get one. Uh, this is the how deeply ingrained culture is in a people, and once it's changed and it becomes deeply ingrained otherwise, you lose your culture, whatever it is. I'm not making a value judgment right at this moment, although I've made up my mind what's right and what's wrong about that. But um, the white man wanted to deal with the red man on his terms, and it wasn't going to happen, and he was defeated in every case when he tried to do that. So old Al Sieber, he decided that what he wanted to do was use the enemies of the Apache to whoop the Apache, and he did. And they loved it because they were out to do nothing but kill. They wanted to kill, kill, kill. They would, these days, Kiowa would tree. They'd tree these um, Apache if they could, men, women, and children. The most fascinating creature, well, Tom Horn was a fascinating individual, of course. Uh, They hung him in Cheyenne, Wyoming on the 20th of November, the year 1903, for the accidental murder of a boy, 14-year-old boy, by the name of Willie Nichols. Well, that was the translator that, went into the lair of Geronimo in Mexico, and he was also prosecuted, uh, Tom Horn was, for uh, the federal government, charged him with invasion of Mexico when he was working for Al Cyber, or Sieber, I think it is. But um, because he crossed over, the, the line, of course, wasn't very clear, but still, we weren't to be in Mexico without uh, some kind of an agreement with the Mexican government. Well, they finally got the agreement, and they tracked, thanks to the 
the Kiowa, if that was the, if I've got that right, they tracked, um, uh, Geronimo down and had a powwow with him and he agreed. He realized the gig was up. He couldn't keep it up any longer. Like all the red men, they all admitted in the end, well, shucks, if we'd known there'd been this many white boys coming across the plains, uh, we'd have quit a long time ago. We thought we could whoop them, uh, in a, and, but we, we can't because, uh, they just keep coming. You kill one, 10 more show up. Well, that's the way it, that's the way it works. Well, what's that Roger? About like the Southern border as this day, go ahead. Well, yeah, you see the analogies. That's great. I'm glad you brought that up. That's why I tell these stories. I don't tell history just because people like it. It's fascinating. And I don't read it because it's fascinating. Really, the reason I read it is because I find that nothing changes. And just as I said, the Reavers, which became, by the way, the Whigamores, which became the Whig Party in England, and the Whigs were the Puritans and the Scotch Presbyterians. They called them Whig for short. And they, that party then came to America. Colonel Davy Crockett was a Whig. Uh, Henry Clay of Kentucky was a Whig. Abraham Lincoln was a Whig. The Whig overtook the Whigs, that party. And it was the party of, um, well, it was the conservative party of the English-speaking world. It was the Christian party because it was the Presbyterians and the Puritans, the biblical men. And they, they called the, the, the Presbyterians Whigs because all Scotsmen, uh, they hated the, the English hated the Scots, you see, like the Kiowa hated the, the, the Apache. It just keeps going on and on, Roger. Everybody hates everybody. Got to keep that hate worked up. It's amazing, uh, isn't it? It is amazing. But now, as I get older, I understand this, the Bible tells us this is the state of sinful mankind, and it gives us it, the Bible gives us law, the will of God to deal with the madness. And we're not paying any attention to the simple direction of the will of the sovereign, which is his law. But uh, I like, I like that subject too, but I want to come back to uh, what I was saying about Geronimo, but I plumb forgot where I was going with it. What, well, what it was just really, I don't, I've, I've gotten so intrigued in you laying these stories out that I've really never been um, exposed to before. It's intriguing when you get presented with new stuff at our, our age. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I, I had no idea. Very interesting. Um, Go ahead. Uh, uh, let's see. I don't, don't even really know. Anybody got any comments on all that or anything well, to add? Any, before there's any comments, I want to raise one more fascinating personality in this Al Sieber, Tom Horn, Geronimo uh, story. And his, right. name, his name was Mickey Free. Now, way, way back when I was in my early 20s, I used to go to the library at the university and I'd get on to one little subject that nobody ever gave any attention to, and I would read everything possible to read about it. And this was one of those subjects. And what I ended up doing was going to all the newspaper articles that were written back then in Arizona, and not to mention all the books that people wrote and the history books written about it. But there was one personality there that, although he may not have been the most important, he was surely the most, well, the sexiest, let's put it that way, to use a common way. colorful the most colorful, colorful. and it, and that and when you say colorful that doesn't even come close to what this fellow was he was a <laughs> color now his name was mickey free mickey free he was intensely criminally handsome and he had long beautiful red hair he was one third irish one third apache 
and one third Mexican. <laughs> he had beautiful long hair that he was overly proud of and vain about, by the way. And he had, and he only had one eye because he lost his eye. He shot an elk and he thought it was dead and he ran up on it, jumped up. And one of the points of the antler hit him in the eye and put his eye uh-huh. out. But he had a personality more than anything like the Apache. What he liked to do is kill people. And he liked to do it in all the ways the Apaches liked to do it. And he had mercy wasn't part of his uh, psyche. It didn't exist. He grew up with the Apache. He could speak Mexican. He could speak, speak Apache and he could speak English. So it was valuable in that way. Mm-hmm. Of all the personalities, if you are interested in, in uh, that time and place of American history, Mickey Free will eclipse all other personalities, although Tom Horn and Al Cyber come close uh, to doing that. Al Cyber finally took a, 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 a pistol ball in his hip from an, from an Apache. I forget. Oh, he was drunk, I think. And uh, they like, oh, he used whiskey a lot to get him to do what he wanted. And that crippled him for life. And he, now that I think of it, he did, he's, because of that injury, he was unable to go to the final capture of Geronimo where they finally cornered him in his lair down in those, uh, uh, I think it was the Sierra Madres, the Sierra Madres right across, I think those are right, right across the border there in Sonora where they finally brought him in, General Miles. Uh, Tom Horn could speak Apache. Tom Horn was a fascinating creature. He uh, grew up in uh, Missouri on a farm. His folks were uh, German immigrants and ended up coming west, kind of like Wild Bill Hickok as a young man and uh, doing whatever he could to stay alive. And he ended up being one of the early, early experts with a lariat. And in Arizona, he developed the art with a lariat of roping a steer, well, anything, he could rope anything, but he could do it from over 50 feet away. Now, nobody had ever really tried to do that much before, but he, what he did was he spliced two lariat, two 30 foot lariats together. Of course, lariats back then were made of, um, of leather, but the best ones, by the way, and still the best lariats you can get is made a the tail of a horse, uh, the tail, a hair of a horse's tail. And really? Method, oh, yeah. And the method that men have always used to make those, this is a art I hope that's never lost, but uh, the men that worked as cowboys could take the, the hair, they, they collected the hair, of course, it's tough hair. And it was wove, they wove it together by such a method. Of course, the whole idea of a rope is that every fiber feeds upon and feeds into other fibers and you by t- putting it together and twisting it the way it's twisted and woven the way it's worked it increases the the strength um as the bible says a rope of three strands is not easily broken it's got to be twisted though because each strand then lends its strength to the other and it exponentially increases the strength of the rope and horse hair lariats are the most powerful ones, but it's fascinating to watch fellows do that. I've watched men weave their lariats that way when I worked out West in the mining industry, but uh, Tom Horn developed the art of doing that. And then when he was finally hung, they couldn't find anybody to, that would, would trip the death trap. It was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Nobody would do it. So they called in an engineer, the feds, 
I think it was the, no. Yeah, I believe it was. Well, no, I won't say that. It had to have been a state court. But they called in an engineer from back east to develop a, uh, a gibbet, as the common law says, a, a gibbet. That's a place where you hang a man's body to, for exhibition to the rest of the world so that they won't do the crimes he did as a warning. Gibbet? But, uh, hold on. What's, the, that, what's that word? Gibbet? gibbet? Yeah, gibbet. Jesus Christ was gibbeted. Okay. It, it's an old, it's an old, he was hung, uh-huh. not on anything uh-huh. particular. He was hung on, I say he was hung on wood particularly. And that's important right. because mm-hmm. gibbeting on wood anciently has been one of the customs of the ways to kill criminals. And the Bible itself uh, says, cursed is any man gibbeted. That means the, the word crucified, the word crucified again is from the Latin Vulgate of Jerome. Mm. Word, why? And it's in my humble studied opinion, it's sad that it ever became part of the English tongue because then all that Latin creeps into our Christianity and those words become um, technical words that people think they know what they mean and they really don't. And all mm. of them just remains dumb, D U M B, as they say. But the, the word, the, the English word, the Anglo Saxon word is not crucifixion, it is gibbet. You're, you're gibbeted on a gibbet, and gibbeting is part of God's law. God has taken that, that particular custom and said, this is the way it is to be done. If you're going to hang a man, and if you don't want him to be cursed, you take him down. Um, but Jesus Christ was gibbeted as a display. The Romans wanted to display him naked, either or in this case, nailed to a post. Now, whether or not it was a post with a crossbar, nobody knows because the testimony of God in the Bible never, ever says it clear enough to make it, yes, this is what happened. Did the Romans often do that with a crossbar? Yes. Uh, But the Bible doesn't make it clear they did it that way in this instance, and they also did it by putting a post, nailing a man to a post with his hands over his head. But that's not the important point. The law of God said the import says the important point is he was nailed to wood and set up as the, between heaven and earth as though he were fit for neither place to be to suffer ultimate humiliation God in human flesh and that's what happened and he sacrificed himself for our law breaking to deliver his people to pay the penalty deliver them from hell because he's the one the Bible says that will hurl Jesus Christ. The Godhead has delegated the task of hurling men to hell into hell to him. But back to Tom Horn, they couldn't find anybody to, to spring the death trap because all, all the men around Cheyenne liked Tom. Tom was a pretty well-known fella. He had gained a great reputation in the Southwest as an army scout and an interpreter knowing the Apache tongue, a Tom Horn could run when he was a young man and 32 year old, 32 years old, the Apache, see the Apache to chase them down. You had to have more than horses. And it took a long time to figure that out too. They, the white men, the U S army, namely couldn't understand how they couldn't keep up with these Apache on horseback. And they'd bring the army in. They'd try to chase them down. Well, what these Apache would do, 
These Apache had been down the road on this for a few centuries. They understood how to make time in the desert. And the way to do it is not on horseback, it's on foot. And they discovered over long experience that if they, what they called dog trotted, dog trotted, that means you just jog at an ever slow pace, but you never stop. And they would jog all day. Well, horses couldn't keep up with that. You got to stop and you got to put them, put the feed bag on them and you got to take the feed bag yourself. And these soldiers, they thought they had to have something to eat every once in a while. They it's kind of like the boars down in South Africa, those Dutchmen, the English could never catch them because they didn't stop to make camp. They'd eat on the run. They grab a leg of lamb out of their saddlebag and keep riding. But they were smart enough to know that they couldn't push their horses. They just had to keep moving. Well, the Apache found that they could dog trot. And the, the reason they called it dog trotting, and if you've ever seen how a coyote trots down the road or a dog, mm-hmm. they just trot, you know. And the reason they do that, and the Apache understood this, the reason they do that, I'm talking about the coyote, the coyote only gets to eat what it kills and it doesn't kill something every day. Probably it may, but it may not. It may be a few days. And so everything about a coyote is how to conserve and a dog too, by the way, if you let them live outside, like they ought to be let to live a dog will, will by nature, God has put it in them to conserve energy, everything they do. And if they've got to go from one place to another, the best way the Apache learned this to conserve energy and make the most time is to dog trot. Well, they couldn't catch him horseback. Well, Tom Horn learned how to do that. He was young and he could do it. And he did, and he could cover 50 miles in a day, uh, daylight hours, just dog trot. And of course you have to stop and sleep at night, but he could keep up with them. So he gained a great reputation as a as a, as a rope thrower, number one, kind of got well known. He, the rodeos were just getting started in the 1880s down there. And he got well known there and made some money. And then he, he came up, he drifted into Wyoming and the, the cattle, cattle wars were going on. The land baron wars were going on and the Johnson County wars. And he got involved in that as an enforcer. And, um, he ended up trying to scare a fella. Well, I shouldn't say he, there's no evidence that came out in court. And I read all the, the accounts of what happened in the court of his murder trial. No evidence came out that he killed Willie Nichols. Uh, you know, the Bible says that you're not to execute a man unless you've got evidence. That means there have to be witnesses to the criminal act. Uh, by the way, circum that cuts out all circumstantial evidence. My friends, I'm, I'm shocked and appalled that the courts accept circumstantial evidence, not only in cases of crime, but in capital cases, that is evil beyond evil. And it may be apparently obvious. Every juror may think it's true, but the law says, if you can't bring in a witness uh, that uh, testified to the act, and here's the other important point on that biblically. Uh, If it comes to capital crimes, the initiator of the execution has to be the witness. It can't be some uh, government employee in a prison someplace, according to God. It has to be the witness to the crime. If he's not willing to initiate the execution, then the execution shouldn't occur. I hear Christian so-called conservative folks talk about how we ought to, where we hadn't ought to have these folk on death row and we ought to just be executing people, try them and execute them, and on and on they go. 
and never even stop to consider what would happen to them if in, they were in that situation. And um, having never been to prison, they don't stop to consider those kind of things. Having never had their uh, neck on the chopping block, uh, going through criminal trial, criminal indictment, never stop to consider what people go through. Ne- and then complain about, I was talking to somebody yesterday about, well, I get fired up, but people talk about all oh, these prisons are like going to the country club and all that. No, that ain't true. It ain't true. Well, I don't even care if it's Roger, what are you going to say something? I was just say there may be a couple of them, but that's just for the Michael Milkins of the world. And I will say even for the Michael Milkins, that's not true. And the reason I say this, two reasons. Number one, I've been thrown in federal prison twice. And I, I give personal testimony. I was thrown out, but um, upon motion, but I was there. I saw how I was going on. I got thrown in as a lawyer defending people in court. But secondly, um, uh, you take a man's liberty there's nothing worse in the world to be alive and not have your liberty, Roger. And I, I refer men, and this doesn't get the story, but it is, it is, um, it is uh, something that maybe would give you a taste of the idea, and you're all familiar with it, and that's why I use this, and that's the song written by uh, that fellow that was in the Eagles called Hotel California. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if that were true, and that's not true, but even if you could fill all your lusts while you're in prison, um, it would still be prison. And to the degree that a man loses his freedom, Roger, you brought this up on several occasions, and it's an important point to bring up, that the most fundamental definition of freedom is freedom of bodily locomotion. Yep. You Mr. Bring that Mr. Up. Black, Mr. Blackstone, that's oh, not Blackstone. me. I'm yeah. quoting Mr. Blackstone. Well, he who never quotes is never quoted, and there you go. So I'm quoting you. But I couldn't remember what source you took it from, but yes, that's true. And to the degree you lose your liberty, you lose your life and your property. And to the degree you lose your property, you lose your liberty and your life. And to the degree you lose your life, and there's only one degree you can lose your life, you lose everything. Life, liberty, and property come as a package. You cannot separate them. You can separate them for purposes of analysis. You cannot separate them for any other purpose. They're inextricably bound in reality and experience. They're inseparable. That's why jails, jails were never a component of our common law tradition. And didn't become punishment for crime in America, being a common law country, until the urbanization of the East Coast cities through, at that time, what was the beginning of our urbanization was the Irish immigration into the cities of the East. And then people panicked, not knowing what to do, because organized crime rose with the false religion that came with that migration, namely Romanism. If you stop and consider, please stop and consider. You don't have any Protestant ethnic groups that operate organized crime operations in mass in America. No, it's always false Babylonian groups that adhere to a particular religious point of view that is Babylonian. That's why you have today 
Peruvian, Bolivian, Central American, Mexican, crime cartels in America. They're all Romanist, Romanist in their culture. That's why you had Italian crime in America organizations. They're Romanist in their culture. That's why you had the beginnings of that with the Irish Roman Catholics that migrated into America that foisted, gave opportunity to foist the initiation of police forces in the cities and jails and jail sentences. That's how that all began. Now you say, Brent, are you sure about that? Yes, that's why you had Murder Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Murder Incorporated was a Jewish organization that worked mm-hmm. hand hand, kill for hire with, with the... Um, the uh, the mob the what they call it, the Costa Nostra and the came to be called the mafia that for short and applied to all organized crime organized crime is the result of false religious points of view but that shouldn't surprise anybody all religious points of view that are false are the springs and the source and the fountain and the action of all evils among men uh, and to the degree that any of us have false understanding of who God is and what our response is to be to him. And all of us do, by the way, to varying degrees. All of us do. It is to that degree that we will break God's law. Sometimes it gets clear out of hand. Uh, Sometimes we try to keep it down. Paul the Apostle says, I beat my body black and blue. That's what that Greek word means. I beat it black and blue. Why? To try to discipline myself from letting my body run my life, letting my bodily lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vainglory of life run my life. No, no, the Spirit of God lives in the Christian man and woman, and the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, is to run your life. But it takes discipline, and God calls us to it and says, there are consequences, boys and girls, consequences, and you're under training right now, And I am your father, and I will take you to the woodshed as often as possible and make you wish, make you wish that you hadn't done that, you hadn't said that. Boy, I was thinking about that, Roger, this morning, thinking about my life. And I said, you know, I I heard something about a friend, a, a relative recently, something he did way back there, right after he got out of boot camp, before he was shipped off to, it wasn't my father, it was another fella. Without saying who it was, don't want to say it, but it was. He, and my mother told me the story uh, just yesterday, uh, talking to her. But way back there, you know, when people get older like that, get up in their nineties, they tell you all sorts of things, and it's good they do. That's why it's important we try to keep these old, these old folks around as long as we yeah, can. Absolutely, because yeah, absolutely. They'll get to the point, they may tell you something you wouldn't believe. <laughs> oh, I'm thankful for those old folks. I love to talk to old folks. Uh, you know, the Bible says that. Um, there's wisdom in the old, in the hoary, the old King James says there's wisdom mm-hmm. in the hoary old head. Mm-hmm. It is found in the way, the path of righteousness. If he's on the right path, but it also says that a wise man who is younger has to dredge it out. You have to dredge it out. Well, I was thinking about this fella and what he did, and, you know, in his youth and indiscretion. Um, you've been there, Roger. I have been there. All of I've been, I've been there more than <laughs> once, my friend. Well, that's a nice way to say it. In our youth and indiscretion, um, the things that we did, uh, some things we did, and then think about it now, friends, and think to yourself, uh, wow, 
there are consequences for all things. Think to yourself, Jesus Christ allowed himself, gave himself to be gibbeted on a, on a wooden post, whatever it was, it was a wooden post, nailed to be set up between heaven and earth as though he were fit for neither place, to be humiliated, spit upon, laughed at, to pay the penalty for your youth and indiscretion. Now, if that is true, and I say, given that that is true, for sake of argument, as Peter the Apostle says in the Bible, what should be our response? As Paul the Apostle says also in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, uh, what should be our response? Peter put it this way, how then shall we live? All these kinds of things being true, how then shall we live? Christianity is about how shall we live once you're born born up. Born up. You know, I heard a fellow say the other day, there, it, you, it doesn't say born again. It says born from above. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to be even more persnickety than that. The Greek word of John 3.16 uh, well, not the John three sixteen, but from John three, uh, ye must or it behooves you uh, to be born again. That word translated born again, ana geneo, it's a Greek verb, two part compounded word. Ana, ana is a Greek preposition that means up. Geneo means to be birthed. Ana geneo doesn't mean to be born again although it is a new birth, but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean to be born from above, from above, but that is what happens, but it doesn't mean that. Let's be careful with the words. It means to be born up. There's no word from, no preposition from in there. That's getting closer when you say born from above, but that's not it either. It's to be born up. Now, what does that mean? I cite as an example. One time I was listening to Ronnie Reagan Makes me, you know, Ronnie Reagan, uh, Roger, that was a long time ago. Remember, he was friends with Maggie Thatcher. And yes. Maggie Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher all, all, always called, uh, always called him Ronnie. Remember that? Right. Ronnie Reagan. <laughs> you can't help but like that kind of approach to politics, but she called him Ronnie and he called her Maggie and they were friends. Well, he also was friends with, uh, a fellow up in Canada who was prime minister. And I disremember his name, but he was an Irishman. He was an Irishman. And Ronnie and him were sitting on a platform getting ready to say something. I believe it was up in Canada. And Ronnie Reagan uh, leaned over to him and said, you know, for a couple of Irishmen, we married, we married up. He was, they were talking about their wives. For a couple of Irishmen, we married up. In other words, we we improved our standing in people's eyes because we married up. And that's what that word means. It doesn't mean married up. In other words, increase and improve your standing. It means to improve your standing because God has birthed you up. He took you a step up. As a matter of fact, quite a few steps <laughs> out of the pit. He, he birthed you up. And because you have that standing before God, bold, as Wesley wrote, you approach the eternal eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, your own. No condemnation now I fear. Jesus Christ and all in him is mine. 
alive in him, my living head, and clothed with his righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Well, the point that Wesley's making there is that now with this new standing, I've been born up. Now to say born up, it's, it makes for clumsy English, but I do all I can, Roger, to try to get across to God's man and God's woman, regardless of who they are, where they're from, what their former standing was, that when you're birthed of God, you're born up like Ronnie Reagan and Prude and the prime minister of, of uh, Canada improved their standing. <laughs> and uh, that's what it means. Well, back to you, Roger. Wow. And for the audience, this is why we have spontaneous programs on Fridays with Brent Winters. (laughs) It's just like Forrest Gump, you know, and his box of chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. Does anybody have any comments or questions on anything that Brent has covered this this morning? Because I would imagine for most of you, it's as new as it was to me. And at my age, like I said, when you get exposed to new things like that, to this extent, it's, well, it's kind of startling. So I'm glad you uh, went that direction today, Brent. It's fascinating. Well, Roger, I thank you for being so kind. And just remember, Roger, um, I'm um, just um, a poor wayfaring stranger. I know, man. I am just yeah, traveling through this world of woe. Yep. Yep. And uh, Jesus is the Messiah, and he, not me, <laughs> he has improved my standing to the point that I don't even understand how good it is. But I'm learning, and the only place you can learn is in that book called the Bible. There is no other mm-hmm. place. If you're mm-hmm. running with some priest or some preacher or some anybody, a professor— and thinking, and if they don't, if they're not keeping their head in, their, in this book, don't run to them. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahuwah, the Lord, and in his law. That's his, the Bible, my friends, the revelation of God's will in writing. In his law, he doth chew like cud. This is the Hebrew text of Psalm chapter 1. He chews like cud both day and night. That's where joy comes and encouragement. Oh, you can go to other people. Just make sure you're going to some man that keeps his his, his boneheaded head buried in this book and his blood is bibbling. Because if it isn't, you're going to get body bite. And I hope I, I'm, I'm working at it, Roger. I hope others are too. Back to you. Yeah, and does, we're going to open it up quickly because I think we're about the top of the hour. And uh, well, I should say, I should say real quick, Roger, go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com, and uh, go to the website, commonlawyer.com. Take advantage of the of the materials, the resources that are there, uh, books, a translation of the Bible from the original tongues. The I call it the winterized version. And you can find all that. But right now, I want to mention something that has given us a response that we didn't expect. I've been teaching law (laughs) at the law school, uh, Winter's Inn, for years now. And, uh, oh, it's been uh, just a dozen people, often or so, they're interested. And I keep teaching. We put them in the can, and people can go back and listen to them, audio and visual. 
But uh, Sheriff Darleaf and I teach the classes. Sheriff Darleaf of Barry County, Michigan, been sheriff 20 years, and he joins me. We're the presenters, and it gives it quite a quite a boost to have him there. Well, he posted he posted that we're going to teach a course, a law school course, 12 on the militia clauses of our Constitution. And he got uh, about 5,000 hits in two and a half hours. And by the evening, it had 17 uh, seven seven thousand no oh, seventeen thousand by the next day probably yikes that night. I don't Brent. know yeah go ahead yikes yeah I don't know that all these people want to take the course but uh, people are interested it did tell me that people are panicked and here's what we need to do friend people say I talk. what should we do about our country what what do we do well I had that question posed to me back when I was on WKZI out of Terre Haute, Indiana, and the other stations were 2 FM, 2 AM. People get all worked up after I'd talk for, in the morning, and they'd call in, panic. What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> I thought about to come up with an answer. I did come up with an answer. Of course, if you're not born from above, you're doomed anyway. I don't know that much you can do. Um, all over but to crying, the Bible says you're already judged and set to be hurled into hell forever. I'm not exaggerating the text. I know what it says. But um, but what can what can a man do or a woman do? But a man especially, um, uh, get your, well, women should have a firearm too, but don't just get a firearm. You should, uh, uh, you should get training in firearm safety and marksmanship. And boy, there are a lot of good courses you can take out there now. Take advantage of them. It's your duty. It's not your option, men. That's right. It's a duty. Ladies, it's your option. It's your option to learn to use a firearm. I encourage you to do it. But men, no, it's your duty. That means you don't have a choice. You're a man. You're able-bodied to carry a weapon. Uh, The the Bible and uh, our common law says that it's your duty to be armed. It's not an option. You were born a member of the militia, men, once you reached reach age 20. That's according to the Bible. According to our Constitution of the United States, which tracks it, um, same thing, four militia clauses. We're going to go through those clauses uh, in this course, Sheriff Darleaf and I. Sheriff Darleaf and I taught a, a course on the power of the county. Now, that's English for posse comitatus. Posse is the Latin word possibility. Possibility, latent power, not patent. Well, this is Brent Allen Winters, CommonLawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. I want you to take that course, friends, neighbors, and kin. I hear the whistling, Roger. That's Chicago. We're cutting out of Chicago. Yeah. And they they yeah. probably need the militia course more than anybody. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, yeah go to CommonLawyer.com and check out that militia course. Do it. Do it now. <laughs> Uh, this is 106.9 WBOU-FM in Chicago, dropping off the stream. If Chicagoans uh, want to follow us into the second hour, please go to ExposeTheMatrix.com. You'll find the links where you can pick up the second hour right there. Thank you, Raj. Yep. yep, you're welcome, Paul. So we'll check Chicago, and they can, as I somewhat tongue-in-cheek say, can go back in the bunker. Um so did anybody hey, in the audience there there's somebody right there we chum somebody up is that you joan yes huh. Brent, hello I to, may i ask you uh 
about two things you have already brought up this this morning. One uh, one question is, and then I'll, then I'll ask the second question, and then and then, so I'll ask both questions right now. <laughs> uh, the first one is, does Yahoha born us from above before we're born, or while we're growing up, or when? Well, Bible says the, the Bible says that. Oh, the second question. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the second question is, um, the militia course looks so great, and a lot of people are um, liking um, liking it. And I mean, you know, putting the, on on sheriff's uh, Facebook page. But I want to ask you. I, I noticed on his um, posting of the militia course on Facebook. He says that it says that legal residents are eligible to join the militia. So my question is, can do you know if nationals who are not residents can join the militia course and they join the militia too? There's my two questions. Thank you. Okay. Now that, okay. that, that's interesting. Go ahead, Brent, address that. Well, the first question, um, when, are you bo- when is a man or woman born up? The new birth, as it is sometimes called. Um, the Bible teaches, I'm giving you the summation. The summation, this is my studied and firm and convicted opinion. It is an opinion. It's my opinion. Of course it is, but it's my firm conviction, and I teach it this way. I'm not speculating. If I thought there were speculation, I'd say so. The Bible says that you are birthed from above, if you are birthed from above, from before the foundation of the world. You are birthed from above in your experience as a man or woman now. And you are being birthed from above. Your new birth is fresh and new every morning. That's what the Bible teaches. But it's not a matter of saying when in the sense that we understand time. We are bound as mortals in time. God is not, our maker is not bound in time. And everything in the Bible is presented that way. I was just thinking here recently about time, and I was thinking about, well, that was yesterday. I was thinking about this. I ended up putting another appendix in my Bible, uh, the winterized version, because it's uh, a theme that's woven throughout the warp and the woof, the text of the context of the Bible. And that is, and this is something I've been dealing with, we talked about last time, and I'm going to deviate because that's my prerogative as co-host on Fridays with Rob, Roger. I want to get back to your question, but I want to deviate and take a rabbit trail here. Roger, I mentioned something yesterday about our common law and about those that deny our Constitution as an Antichrist document and biblically seditious. And Roger raised the name Ted, Ted Weiland. And uh, I know Ted, and I did a sort of debate and trial with him about the Constitution down in the Missouri Ozark region uh, a few years ago. And I, and I didn't mention his name. Roger did. I said, that's okay. But I want to say this about Ted. If his name's going to be mentioned, I need to say it. And here's what it is. 
Um, Ted Wyland is one of the few men that are Bible teachers that makes a hard and serious effort to understand what the Bible says and what it means by what it says. I know a lot of men that are much more formally educated than Ted that don't do that. And they're shirking their responsibility, their duty. Ted has done that. I disagree with him. I believe he's wrongheaded on that question. I don't mean a little bit. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't excite me to further thinking, because he does. And that's the way it's supposed to work. So I don't want to be negative about him. He's also, of course, other things he teaches. And I don't want to be negative about anybody that teaches the identity message either. Uh, the, I've been around these kind of men all my life. I've uh, identified with them in a lot of ways, but I don't want to be negative about that. But I disagree with them. But I don't even I don't disagree with them as strongly on that as I do on the Constitution question because uh, on the the identity question they do have some evidence. They do have some evidence, and it's not just a random here for biblical reasons. I don't go down that road, and I think I mentioned some of that the other day. About uh, translation of a particular word in the third chapter of the second and third chapter of of Genesis in the Hebrew text. But let me get back to the question that the the lady asked: When are we born from above? The Bible teaches that God has established the names of His beneficiaries from before the foundation of the world. And whatever God establishes and decrees, the Bible says He doesn't change His mind about. Uh, the translations use the old Latin-based word. He doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. The Greek word means change of mind. Every time you see the word repent, just substitute the words change mind, change of mind, because that's what meta, metanoeo, metanoeo means. That's a compounded Greek word. It means meta means to change. You've heard the word metamorphosis, metamorphosis. That's a... Uh, Greek word we are somewhat familiar with. And metamorphosis means meta, change, morphous, shape. Uh, butterflies go through what they call meta, caterpillars go through metamorphosis and become butterflies. Well, meta means change and noeo means mind. God does not change his mind when he says he has chosen his people individually by name from before the foundation of the world and he never changes his mind, and that's called the doctrine of election. He chose men, by, way, by the way, and women, to be beneficiaries of his trust settlement. The covenant of God, more particularly, is a common law trust settlement with all the features of a common law trust, and we are the beneficiaries, and beneficiaries of common law must be named and chosen by name where a court can reasonably ascertain exactly who they are. A trust that somebody settles that says, well, everybody in the whole world is the beneficiaries. Well, that's not a trust. The courts would throw that out. No, you've got the name and make it clear who the beneficiaries are. God did that. God did that. The Bible says he did it. There's no getting around it, friends. I know most of Christendom will go through the blamedest gymnastics to try to get around that. I was telling a fellow the other day, for those of you that listen in Britain and Maybe in America, in America and, and uh, Canada, South Africa, uh, New Zealand, 
or anywhere if you're Anglican. If you're Anglican, you know, Anglicans are viewed, they have their practices are rather Babylonish, rather Babylonish. Of course, the Puritans that ruled Parliament and came to America were Anglicans, but they got rid of all the Babylonianism. They made it, they outlawed it. They found every bit of it they could find. They even outlawed Christmas to the point of making it a misdemeanor to make a mincemeat pie in the New England colonies. They, wanted, they got rid of wedding bands as Babylonish. Are they Babylonish? Of course they are. That's easy to show in history. They said, we're not going to do that. Well, that's how Christian they, they were, but most of Anglicanism is, is um, high church stuff, and they, go, they get into things that smack of idolatry and mass. But let me tell you something if you're Anglican, and you can go look for yourself, and you've got an Internet, and there's no excuse for not looking. Go look at the 39 articles of the Anglican church, that every Anglican priest swears to, swears upon his life to. And you will find there the Reformed doctrines of the Puritans stated in biblical consonants, perfect biblical consonants as to the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. Now, I'm, it's not my job to persuade anybody to these things. It's not my job to argue about it, and I won't do it. It's my job to proclaim what the book says. Uh, that's my calling for whatever it's worth. I've been doing it for decades. I know what the book says. I'm not going to tolerate my presence. People saying otherwise, it just does, it's not there. And that's just um, that's the mindset and the paradigm that's been shoved into the minds of men. It's Babylonish. It's part of the Roman doctrine. It puts man as sovereign and not God. And it's not what the Bible says. So being born from above, you, common sense, of course, would tell you, you know, the first time you were born in the flesh, you're, you had no say in the matter. That's why Jesus Christ chose to use that analogy to describe what happens upon becoming a Christian man or woman. It's not something you do. There's no place in the Bible. And Ted Wyland, I listened to everything he said when I went into debate with him, so I had to learn his mind. I know a lot about what Ted teaches, and um, it's been very instructive. But to go into a trial or debate or war, as again, as Roger likes to quote, uh, you better know your enemy. You better know your enemy and know what he probably is prone to do. Who was it said that? Yeah, that was quoted. Sun Sue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. So when I go into trial, I, I try to know. One time, Roger. Go ahead, Roger. you going to say something. I was just going to say somebody sent me an article. There's speculation that Sun Tzu was a front name for a, a Jesuit priest who was in China in that part yeah, of yeah. the time, and that this was actually written, attributed to Sun Tzu, is a Jesuit priest. Don't know the validity of it, but the truth is stranger than fiction. But we do know for sure that uh, Rome set their, sent their Jesuits as missionaries into China in the 1600s. That really happened. Now, Sun Tzu, I don't know when he was lived. before that. Has so that a couple thousand years ago. Oh, well, yeah, that wouldn't fit. But at any rate, uh, I go into trial. I went to trial. The last trial of any big note I did, I went in and uh, God, I was it was against the bank. Those are the ones that stick in my mind. Uh, and I had uh, six bank executives, vice presidents, you know, different on branches on the witness stand for. No, I'm sorry. One, two, two, two executives 
vice presidents, had them on the stand for six hours apiece. That was fun. And I took the case not thinking I'd win it because you just don't win against banks for a lot of reasons. But I took the case thinking this is my chance to educate myself on how banks work. Now, when you got somebody on the witness stand and you can cross-examine them, I mean, what opportunity, where else could you get that opportunity, Roger? Right, right. They're sworn to tell the truth, supposedly. And so, know thy enemy. I'm talking about knowing thy enemy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody, well, I had people helping me, and that's always, when you're in battle, you need resources. Somebody came to me and said, look, I've got all this information on this particular bank executive of, um, summer home and what happened in the big summer home that this executive bought in Aspen, not Aspen, uh, Estes, Colorado with a, one of, one of their conspirators in crime. And it happened right after they robbed your client at $9 million. And they bought this big, uh, summer home or winter home is up in there, but wherever that, whenever they went there and boy, got, she got on the witness stand and I said, well, you own a, a large home in, uh, Estes, Colorado, don't you? Well, that I could see the panic in the eyes. Looked over at the other lawyer. The lawyer looked at her. Objection, Your Honor. Relevance. And the judge, of course, the judge is always for the bank. That's usually the way it works, you know, because they're afraid mm-hmm. of everybody else. So, and of course, then there's girls for lawyers. That's changed the color of the court. And of course, the judges, if they're men, they'll they'll try to protect the girls. And don't tell me it's not true. Friends, that's what men are wired to do. I don't care how crazy it gets. They're going to try to be chivalrous at some point if they got any sense in their heads and make sure the girls are treated a little different. Why? Because they're girls. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's everything right about that. But in court, it doesn't work. He's treating the girls different. Now, that's not fair play. That's not, that's not due process, my friends. Well, at any rate, so... <laughs> he said, Mr. Winters, what, what are you doing here? What's this all about? I said, just testing credibility, judge. Well, I, the judge knew that if you're testing credibility, if you say that's why you're doing it, the law says he can't stop you. Oh, there are limits there too, but I was, te- I tested credibility for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> And boy, was it fun, Roger. You know, you just have those moments in life when you can do that one thing. Yeah. And boy, did I, I know it's not like I, it was, I would have people, it wasn't me. I had people feed me information and I said, well, uh-huh. of course that the rule is on cross-examination. And this is kind of an, a rule on your honor, on the honor of the cross-examiner. The rule is you got to have some evidence that what you're asking about is possibly true. I mean, just coming out of the blue and accusing people by leading questions of all sorts of things is not, not permitted. You got to have some evidence. Well, I had the evidence, you know, uh, you can look that stuff up, but, uh, know your enemy. That's important. There's no doubt about that. So let me get back to what the questions were here. Born from above. Listen, if you, my friend, think that it'd be a good idea that you have a better standing in life and you think you, it'd be good if you were born up and you think it might be a good idea that you uh, don't stay in your present standing and be uh, in uh, a standing of a criminal and be liable to be hurled into hell forever. Um, 
I think it'd probably be a good idea to, to acknowledge that God has birthed you from above. Now you say, well, how can I know that? Listen, friends, if you, you know want that, if you want that, if you ache for it, that's strong evidence that God has you in his list of name beneficiaries that the Bible calls the book of life. He's got you in there. And what, what would it hurt my friend to hunger? And if you have that hunger and thirst after what is right headed righteousness, blessed are you says the savior. Blessed are you when all men revile you. So you just start doing what you feel the impelling force to do. Acknowledge Mm -hmm. who Jesus Christ is. Acknowledge that his word is true. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Can you do that? If you listen, the Bible says no man can acknowledge these things that I'm saying right now, unless it be by the spirit of God. If the spirit of God is in you and you're being impelled to do these things, that's what Christianity is all about. Because mm-hmm. at the new birth, you become a new creation. That means a new creature. Same word, a new creature. You're not the same guy you were before. And you'll be in the Spirit of God. If he's in you, here's what's going to happen. He will impel you by irresistible urge to want to please your father. And he will discipline you when you don't. He'll make you rethink your responses, as my niece says to her daughters after she after her daughter mouthed off to it, to her. She said, she said, I said, what'd you do? She said, I popped her right in the kisser. <laughs> I handed that girl. And I said, maybe you want to rethink that response. Uh, it made me laugh. And not that I encourage people to beat their children. No, not that I would ever uh, say that you ought to, do something to your child that would damage them bodily. No. But there is something to be said for applying pain. God's going to do it, my friend, if you don't. God's going to do it, and it's going to be a lot rougher. As and, a, yeah, you, you can see the people that turn that uh, later in life, you can see the people that weren't disciplined when they were younger. Let's put it that way. There's all sorts of ways. Foolishness and bound up in the heart of a child. I grew up with a fella that is, uh, somebody said, well, let's go to the Christmas service over here at this little church. I was passing through. I said, okay. And the son of this fellow I grew up with, with was there. I knew his dad. I knew him. And then I see this guy and he's, he's a preacher. And it kind of surprised me. I was encouraged by it. Did a good job of teaching the Bible too. And uh, he was telling the story that something happened. He grew up and he was talking about all the things. And I knew what he was talking about because I knew the family. And uh, he said that uh, there were a bunch of boys. And I knew I knew the families of the boys he talked about that he's running around with. He said, you know, if you've got one boy, you got one brain. If you got two boys, you got half a brain. <laughs> you <get two> boys together. <laughs> You get three boys together, you got one third of a brain. Add in item. Add item. I said, yeah. I said, girls, same way. You get a dozen girls together, you got a twelfth of a brain. And same way with boys. Well, he was telling about something that happened. But children, foolish. The Bible says foolishness is bound up 
and the heart of a child. Mm-hmm. If your children with other children, I'll tell you what you'll get. You'll get foolishness <laughs> exacerbated beyond yes. measure. That's why. That's why the Bible doesn't establish public schools, friends. It's mm-hmm. not that easy. I mean, I raised animals when I was well, after I was grown, and uh, there's animals you don't put together; they'll kill one another when they're newborn. You don't do that, right? Right. Think, think sinners, and those aren't sinners; those are animals. Uh, you think <laughs> sinners like men are any different? No, no, they're brutal. They'll they'll hurt each other. Go ahead, Roger. I, well, it wasn't me; it was Joe. Joe, you wanted to have a comment with us, did you, my friend? This Ken. Oh, hey, Ken. Well, you hadn't been around in so long. I forgot what your voice sounded like. <laughs> oh, boy, I'm in trouble. I haven't even got started yet. Uh, <laughs> Gentlemen. Well, we're glad to uh, see we, you uh, back. Regardless, regardless, we're glad to see you back. Continue. Well, it's been a long time since I bugged you, and I just couldn't help myself anymore, so oh, I had to chime in. <laughs> Uh, well, I did holler at you that one time via RBN, so... Um, yes, that's true, that's true. So, some grace. Um, are we still on the possible subject of the doctrine of election? Sure, but I don't want to forget, I want to remind myself, uh, there was another question that... Yeah, Joan uh, had another one. I was interested in that one, too. What was it, Roger? I'll write it down. I forgot it. It was about uh, Pastor uh, Leaf's Facebook page where he said you had to be a resident to be in the militia or something. Okay, I, let me, let me I wanted to explain that. I wanted to explore yeah. that. I, I won't explore it, but I want to give a quick answer. And I want to hear what, what uh, Ken has here. Ken. 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 I just say, yeah. Uh, um, number one. Well, number one. Hold on. Oh, oh, oh Ken. Ho, oh, oh, Ken. Let him address that. We'll get to you. this real quick. Number one, uh, you can't join the militia. You're born into it. Okay. All male members, all male members of America, we the people, refers to that is the militia. That's uh-huh. what that word means. You can go back in history, you see it over and over again. That's what it means in the Bible when it translates the word militia, Hebrew, Ha'am, the militia. It's always the militia. We get to uh, the people, that's the militia, that's the male members. You're born into it. It's not something you join when you reach a certain age. The law obligates you to a duty. No, it's not something you volunteer for. That's what I said a while ago. It's not a, an obligation that a man be armed. Uh, our common law and our Bibles call for it. Uh, insist upon it. it. Obligation, duty, arises out of law, not out of contract, my friends. Mm-hmm. And that's your duty. And so I have a friend down in Georgia to illustrate this. He, on his birth certificate, he's over 70 now, on his birth certificate, it tells what militia district he was oh, born that's in. Right. What state right. has district. Because it's something you're born into. And, uh-huh. and you're able-bodied, you carry a weapon, and you, you're liable to serve on, you're responsible to serve on jury duty. The lo- that is in defense of the land and defense of the law of the land. That's why our oath says, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Foreign, that means defense of the land. Domestic, that means willingness to serve on the jury. Our common law brings it all together. The Bible teaches it clearly as well. Uh, that's the answer about the militia. And about uh, what he says on the Facebook page, I didn't catch all that, but we'll talk about that later. Ken, tell us what's on your mind concerning the anonymous doctrine called predestination and election. Well, coming from, a, well, first of all, you sparked a memory, uh, and I'm pretty sure I saw this on PBS of all places, 
that Lewis and Clark had air rifles that they brought with them that would pump up to 800 PSI. I just thought uh, that was quite fascinating. So that might be something somebody needs to put out these days. But I digress. Swiss Swiss Army issue, by the way. Swiss Army issue air rifles. That's what the Swiss Army had for standard issue at that time. Wow. Fired 22 rounds per per charge, 22 rounds at about 800 feet per second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it had uh, like a bone gasket because it was the only thing that could handle the 800 PSI. Uh, Uh I mean, yeah, that's uh, I I don't know what the feet per second was, but uh, yeah, I mean, just I'd never heard of that. And I thought that was so fascinating. It'd be such a great thing to have today, um, you know, for environment hunting and all that fun stuff that comes in handy these days. But again, I, I digress. Um, it's really fascinating because I, I uh, tuned in to Eurofolk and heard you talking about uh, issues of election. And I just got off a call with somebody about a big discussion about, you know, semi-Pelagianism versus Augustinianism and all of that. And I come from the Reformed camp, so you already know my position. Uh, well, tell, which segues well, tell, into, tell the folks. Wait, tell the folk. Make the connection for them between Reformed and what you're talking about. Now, I, I know the connection, and I like I like it that you bring that up. But if you say Reformed, what does that mean? Telephone. Uh, yeah, we could be here for hours, but uh, basically it, it means that uh, God chooses you. You don't choose God. You're, you're born from above. Uh, you were bought at a price, and... You know, nobody comes unto the Father but by Christ, um, you know, unless God first draws him. Um, uh, so that's the the gist of that. And what I would, was trying to make clear for people is that um, so often in this conversation about election, uh, people get mixed up uh, between... Uh, scriptures, there's talking about sanctification, and they think that it's about justification, and they'll be talking about justification when it's actually about sanctification. And the the difference is justification, and I know you already know this, but uh, for the people out there, justification is a one-way street. It's all God, 110% God, whereas sanctification is a two-way street. It's after you've been justified, after you've been bought with the price, then it's you and God working together on your salvation, but not for your salvation. And I I just wanted to throw that out there. If people, when they get confused about the doctrine of election, is to determine whether or not what verse they're talking about is dealing with justification or sanctification. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad you explained it the way you did. You gave us a couple of phrases that I think I wrote it down. I like the way you said it. You said sanctification is me working on my salvation or my justification, but justification is God's business, not mine. 
I can't do that. I cannot justify myself in any way. It's not even possible. That's what you were saying. Did I say that right, Ken? Yes, sir. It's, you know, the old uh, argumentum about uh, that you're drowning and somebody throws you a, a life preserver or uh, whatever you call those round things, um, uh, lifesaver, I guess, uh, and that you have to reach out and grab it. And that's their version of justification that you're involved. Whereas from the reformed camp, you're already drowned. You've already sunk to the bottom. You're without life. And somebody dives in and pulls you out and resuscitates you. That's the difference. You don't, well, you, in uh -huh. terms of, in terms of justification, Good. it's all God. So it's him diving in and, and re reviving you, not you reaching out and grabbing onto the lifesaver and, and being a part of it. That's the other analogy a lot of people use. Uh-huh. So people think that maybe what you're saying is some kind of theology that somebody foisted upon the Bible. But that's not the case, is it? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, Paul bemoans those facts in Romans. And so when you say Reformed, and that's the one of the popular monikers of that point of view, you're just saying denial of Romanism, Babylonianism, Judaism, and all the isms and schisms that we wish was wasms that say that I can do something to bring about my salvation, to save, help, to help God save me from hell, to do like the Mormons, the, who, the, whose motto is, God will save you after all you can do. Or Rome's motto, yeah. yes, you, Rome says you got to come to the priesthood or you can't be saved. The, the church has a point in all this. So really the word reformed, and I'm, I want you to respond to this, if you would, please, sounds like the word reformed is just another synonym for what the Bible says. Right. Putting us back on track, we, we jumped the track on our theology due to, uh, again, I, I believe, a, a misunderstanding between justification and sanctification. I, maybe not quite that simple. You know, it's more complex than that. But generally speaking, uh, I, I believe that to be the case. Actually, specifically okay. speaking, too, but, you know. Well, that's, a, a, that's a, an effective way to draw the distinction. Another way to, and I like that. That's another one. Here's another way to, to draw the distinction. Um, ask yourself this. Did the church produce the Bible, or did the Bible produce the church? Now, this is one of the arguments that went on way back during the Reformation. The, the uh, Rome said that the church produced the Bible, and uh, therefore, if the church produced the Bible, the church has authority to tell you what it means, see? The, uh. reformer, the reformer said, no, 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 no. The Bible's clear. The Bible produces God's people. See, that's why the word church is so no, no, they said the Bible clearly states that it, the Word of God, produces the church. What would they call the church? Uh, the King, congregation. 
The congregation. That's good. Produces the, I like yeah, that so often it's mistranslated. I mean, church is a made-up word. I mean, I realize that it possibly goes back to uh, uh, the Scots or somebody where they call it the kirk and uh, so on and so forth, but it, it's, it, it's easier to understand it as the congregation, the ecclesia. Well, the, that's good. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. The word church came to be a high church word. It became to have a Babylonian connotation that talked about a, a highly organized and powerful priesthood. And that's why uh, William Tyndale, in translating the Bible from the original tongues for the first time in the 1500s, rejected the word. Uh, see, the, 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 the high church wants to keep, wanted to keep certain words in the Bible, certain English words, because those English words is what kept them. In power, see, and uh, church is one of those words. Uh, penance instead of repentance is another word. Repentance means change of mind. They wanted penance because that has connotations of give me money, and they didn't want to get rid of that one, see. And there were about two hundred words like that when the translations of the translations of the Bible started coming out. But the whole um, the whole idea of church is not bad in the beginning. And this is where I. A lot of my conservative Christian friends and William Tyndale, I would be a friend with him, except he promoted the divine right of kings. I suppose I could be say I'd be friends, but I mean to say I wasn't in his camp. He promoted the divine right of kings, and he did it very hard. And then the very people he was promoting, namely Henry VIII, uh, had him hunted down like a mountain cat and murdered. Uh, that's mm. the way that works. You don't. You don't do cut deals with the devil. He was wrong. No matter who we are, friends, no matter who we are, we're not right on everything. And if I knew where I was wrong, I'd say so. If I ever see it, I try to. And I, But only the Bible is right. The Bible's the final word. But I did say a while ago, and I'll say it again, don't be listening to people, Bible teachers, so-called Bible teachers that don't have their head buried in the book every day. You're going to get a curse um, and most people that claim to be Bible teachers, I'm an older man now. I'm not pr- trying to promote myself. As uh, one of the listen- listeners said a few years ago, I think Brent really hurt himself saying what he said. People aren't going to listen to him. That's not part of my psyche anymore. I'm an older man. It's fun to tell the truth. Just like I was telling about my mother yesterday, she says things and my father says things <laughs> they never said before. And they're having fun doing it because they're both pushing a hundred years old. Right. <laughs> Well, I'm close to that. I'm getting older now. And uh, increasingly, I just want to tell the truth because I get such a charge out of it. And that's what God wants me to do anyway. And these doctrines that I'm teaching, uh, I've found that uh, they don't always get me friends. But I want you to know something. I'm not getting paid to do this either. And Roger's Mm -hmm. not getting paid. We like to get Mm -hmm. on here. Roger's on more days. Oh, oh, I get paid. I get paid. All right. It's just in what medium. Okay. That's right. And when, you know, the retirement plan you got is pretty good. I know. Um, Not going to hell is a good retirement plan, by the way. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I tell you, I just find this information changed my life. So 
so dramatically, and I know how powerful it is, and I just get the biggest charge and the best feedback out of putting this stuff out there, not charging you a penny, and watching it change these people's lives. I just get the biggest charge out of that. For sure. And uh, that's the way God wired us. And then when you're born from above, he, he hardwires you that way. And it ain't going to change, friends. You got to, you're going to have a hunger. If you have a hunger for the truth, uh, that's good evidence. You're hardwired. How do you know that you're born up? How do you know? Well, the Bible gives us the evidentiary tests whereby you may know. And um, it gives you the evidentiary test where, whereby you may make a judgment about others. And you're responsible to do that. No question. No question. You're to be a fruit inspector. You shall buy, Jesus Christ said, right, right. You shall buy the fruits, start inspecting the fruits. So well, I don't judge other people. Well, inspect their fruits. That's right. You got to know what it is. Well, well you do. But yeah, go ahead. You do have to judge them because you have to determine whether or not you're using the same epistemology. Well, now you're Otherwise, getting you can never. Yeah. Go ahead. No, hell no. You right. finish. Yeah. Um, because if if you don't if you're not coming from the same epistemology, you'll never be able to come to an agreement. Are See, you? here's here's the, uh, Ken, here's the problem with uh the reformed tradition and reformed folk, biblical folk. They follow hard after the reformers, and rightly so. Those men plumbed the depths. I've read of the Puritans, the old Presbyterian reformers, the Dutch and German reformed groups, and they did a great job, but there was a drawback to it. There is a drawback, and that is this. They, most of them, being former Roman priests, highly educated lawyers of the canon civil laws of Rome, the Code of Justinian, put to an ecclesiastic purpose, Highly trained, seven to 20 years of the highest of education after you learn how to do all the basics. Well, once they get to that point, having spoken nothing and written nothing but Latin all those years, that becomes their point of distinction. And so Christianity, even reform and even Protestantism in a general sense, are shot through with a whole lot of Latin words that nobody knows what they mean. Now, for example, if you're going to study these men, that's what you're going to find, even in English, is a lot of Latin words, like epistemology, the one he just mentioned. I'm going through now, Ken, going through the Westminster Confession. Of course, that was drafted by men in England, summoned, subpoenaed. Parliament subpoenaed them while they were at war, while the smell of gunpowder hung in their noses and in the air, and asked them, they said, look, we don't want to do anything that's unbiblical, Here's the questions we have. Tell us where the, the limits are of what we as, as, um, as parliament can do. And they put together as answers to those questions, and that came to be called the Westminster Confession. The Presbyterian Church in Scotland adopted it as their statement of what they believe, the Bible, drawing it together, what it teaches. Well, I'm going through that now, and I'm trying to eliminate every Latin-based word from that document. I'm having a lot of fun, but I, when I go through a document like that, what I discovered is what I'm discovering is that there's more Latin in that by 10 times 
than there is in the English translations of the Bible of that day. And there's Latin in that too. They couldn't get away from it. But the doctrinal statements outside of the Bible are even worse. So when you say epistemology, epistemology, which you, you threw that around like it was a piece of cordwood and everybody knew what it meant. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that nobody did. So will you, if you can, well, tell us how you understand that word. Uh, well, it's catch-22 here because when I only have a six-second soundbite to get a point across, you have to throw around $100 words. But the general way that I, I would explain it is how do you know what you know? The question is, how do you know? Uh-huh. That's okay, your epistemology. So epi, it's a word in the New Testament. Epi means upon, and stenology is a word from the the word stand, sta, sta, an old word, stand. It means upon what are you standing to make the assertions you're making. Is that a fair way to say it? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know what? How, what is the basis of what you're, you're saying? Or how do you know what you know? That's good. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Dan. Right. And in the context of, of uh, your, your, your biblical interpretations, uh, just like the word hermeneutics, you know, the art and science of language translation. But when you're talking about in the context of the Bible, it's, you know, how do you interpret the Bible? What set of rules do you use to interpret that? or translate that language. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just $100 words to condense, a, you know, what, it, what what I would otherwise be very verbose on. Well, I want you yeah, to I know, and I want our listeners to know, that I'm not going to be upstaged for a second by somebody like you. <laughs> I, know, I know a lot of big words, too. Words like hippopotamus, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I I appreciate you bringing those words up, and uh, I, I'm a word man. Roger and I started this show. We want to talk about words, and we used to call it the Tasmanian Word Association Hour. That's correct. And we still I want to come back to words, and we used to say Roger more often uh, when men lose the meaning of words, they lose their lives, their liberties, and their property. Yeah, get that, but somebody more famous than me. It's supposed to, you know, it's attributed to Confucius. I'm not sure whether he said it or not, but that was the attribution. Don't forget, it seems like you're the, you're the Bible guy. It seems like God spoke the world into existence. I'm sure he didn't use a mantra. Yes, yes. And that's what I was saying yes, about but how can, uh-huh. Go ahead. Yeah. How can you nail them for their equivocation if you don't know the meaning of words? Absolutely. Well, no, you can. So we try to know the meaning, but I want to focus if I can, and I'm trying to. In the winterized translation of the Bible, I have a policy of not including any Latin-based words. And the, one of the more fascinating things, I've, no, I don't know that anybody's ever tried to do that. Latin has become such an infiltration into our tongue. But if you put words, a translation of the Bible, for instance, into only Anglo-Saxon words, Boy, does it hit hard and punchy everywhere in ways it cannot otherwise. Cannot otherwise. Um, mm. You've got to find an old Anglo-Saxon word, see, a, a one or two syllable uh, word that uh, punches hard. 
And there are a lot of them I've discovered that we've quit using. Um, I'd like to say, I've often said, uh, some of you have heard me say this. In Anglo-Saxon, if, if a house, if a ha- if fire uh, consumes a house, you just say it burned. It burned. And in, um, in Latin, you say it conflagrated. That, that word conflagrate is, of course, a multisyllabic word. And it, the multisyllabic nature of the language, the Latin-based languages, takes away the punch of the words. That means it takes something away from the meaning. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English from the original tongues for the first time. And he said, I'm quoting him loosely because I don't remember the exact quote, but the bottom line was this. He said, there's not a better tongue among, among mankind to translate the earthy Hebrew into than the earthiness of the Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon is right down to the ground. And most of its words are one and two syllables. By the way, most Hebrew words of the Older Testament are one and two syllables too. Not all of them, like our Anglo-Saxon. We have some. If you want to say intestines in Anglo-Saxon, all you got to say is one syllable. Guts. Guts. And when we come to those passages in, in James where he talks about having compassion, he uses the Latin word, compassion. Well, what's the Greek word there? Splagkana. Splagkana. It's an onomatopoeia word. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, like gazunda. It's a word that is intended to imitate the sound of something in nature. And so splagkana is a Greek word intended to imitate the sound of guts when they hit the tub when you're gutting a hog or a deer. When it hits the deck, splagnol, splat. In English, we say splat. That's mm-hmm. the monopoeia word that in, that imitates a sound. The buzz mm-hmm. of the bee, the hiss of the snake, the knock of the door, etc. And uh, the, in our Anglo-Saxon, we have more of that. You know, there's sometimes among men where that's all they've got is onomatopoeia. I heard a fellow give a speech one time, and he tried to sprinkle English with all with the onomatopoeia of his tongue, he was an African, an African, and every word in the tongue he grew up with in, imitates something in nature. It's that primitive. And to hear him <laughs> sprinkle, sprinkle those words throughout his English, it's amazing. It was amazing to me. I could understand what he was saying, just because you're familiar with a lot of the, the sounds. And we have a lot of words like that. And the more earthy a tongue is, the more we have that imitation of sounds. So we go from what is known to what is unknown. Well, Ken, did you have anything else you wanted to say about uh, about the subject of what you call reformed? No, I'm, I'm very good. I just uh, really wanted to chime in because uh, I found uh, identifying the difference between justification and sanctification, just basically the the doors of theology swung open for me and made everything much easier to, to understand. I've heard, but I've heard some men, well, thank you. I've heard some men explain it this way by another angle. 
they say that when you're born a new creature, that everything is new. You're a new creature. You're not the same guy you were before. You have a new desire, a new heading of your nose, a new outlook on life. Everything is different. And your position is perfect before your God. Perfect. That means you are fully and forensically justified. It's not God saying, well, I'm going to overlook your crimes, your breaking of my will, my law, the things that you've done that are devious. I'm not going to overlook them. No, I paid for them. I paid for them. So you are fully, really justified. That's called justification. So your position is perfect before your God, but your practice is certainly not perfect. Your position is perfect. I am perfected. When I was birthed as my father's son, my position as my father's son was perfected, and nothing could ever change that. If I don't want to be my father's son, I can't change it. If my father wants to disown me, he can disown me, but he can't change it. He's still my father. And that's the way it is in the new birth. You can't change it. He has promised he can change it. Go ahead, Ken. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's exactly what I was going to comment on earlier is that that's the little ditty that I'll use with people when I'm discussing this is that I'll just, you know, if we're not seeing eye to eye, I'll just ask them flat out, did you choose to be born? And they'll say, well, of course not. And then uh, my next question is, well, then what makes you think you can choose to be born again? I yield. That, that's why the, the that, that analogy, by the way, that Jesus Christ used, John chapter 3, with a member of the high court of last resort of Israel, named Nicodemus, that John plays that analogy out through all the rest of his writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And Peter adds to that analogy when he talks about you're born of the sperma in the Greek text, sperm of God, which is his word. And he plays the analogy out that way. It's not something you do. And once conception occurs, birth is impossible to stop. Whether you're stillborn or premature, even in our flesh, birth is impossible. And it's impossible once God has conceived you. And he uses the analogy of the egg and the sperm. And when the sperm of the word of God penetrates the ovum of faith, of trust, that God has put in you as a gift, not of you, says Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Your faith is not of you. It's of God, says Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He put it in there. It's a gift of God. It says that over and over in the Bible. By grace. That's where, that's where conception occurs and birth is inevitable. Somebody wants to say something. That is myrrh. Myrrh's front Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you've I came You've been lurking. Uh, yeah, yeah. You've been lurking back errands, there for but... a minute. I tuned in and uh, was going to have to run, but uh, I'm so glad I caught Ken, too, uh, and with you guys. And uh, that that first uh, word, that Conestoga wagon we were looking for, Conestoga, and the the epistemology uh, says here in the entomology that 1856 coined by Scottish philosopher James F. Furrier. I thought that was interesting. That was the first word. I had on the first show, my little promo shows over there at RBN, epistemology. And that's exactly how Ken said the definition was, is how do we know what we know? You know? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, you could ask, I'm sorry, you done? 
Uh, I just wanted to add here, uh, don't forget to go to Brent Winner's site, commonlawyer.com. And I also wanted to say that Ken did two so far episodes with my two-hour show now there at RBN about the Maseroth. And we're going to do some more. All right. Well, um, epistemology is one of those fancy words again, hermeneutics. First time I heard the word hermeneutics, I remember saying, I remember who the speaker was. He was teaching hermeneutics. And I said to myself, Herman who? Herman. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. Well, Hermes, and then I finally... Herman Munster. Well, right, right. I had a... Well, and the word is that they're the same, as far as I know, but the we had a, a, a an old pump house by the house where we had the milk house, then we had the smoke house, and we had the pump house. And the pump house, we ran on a, a gas motor from the oil field there, and we had natural gas and didn't have electricity, so we had a national gas, natural gas motor. We could fire that up, and it would pump the pump on the well out in front of the pump house. But inside the pump house, up on the, the oak railing around under the eave of the roof, Dad had uh, all of his bolts and nuts in uh, old oil cans and coffee cans. And of course, as a little boy, I'd just sit and stare at all the insignias on those cans. And one of them, I remember, was a picture of a man that had a helmet on his head and had wings coming out of the helmet. And he had on his feet little tiny wings on his feet. And he was in a position like he was running. And the can said, great big letters, marathon. Better in the long run. And I had a picture of this man. Well, I found out later that, of course, marathon's a race and and um, the man was uh, a man that ran the marathon, but really it was a picture. Well, a man that ran the marathon, yes, but also in that case, it was a picture of the Greek god whose name was Hermes. Hermes. Hermes was the Greek god called the messenger god, and he was uh, in a caricature always having wings on his feet. Because the messengers were runners. They would run from one place to another and carry messages. And that's what the marathon was. A man ran 26 miles, 385 yards, and delivered a message of the, uh, the uh, Greek forces having won the battle. That's a long way to run. And he died, by the way. He didn't die because he ran 26 miles and 385 yards. He died because he ran that distance twice to carry the message again. And he shouldn't have done that. That was too much. Fifty-some mile, it wiped him out. But, but the Greek god that is the god of messengers is the god Hermes. So in the Greek tongue of the New Testament, the word that is the basis of hermeneutics is used. Hermeneutics is the science or the rules, as Ken said, of interpretation of writings of legal significance. The Rules of Interpretation of Writings of Legal Significance. I have the book written that Justice Scalia wrote about the rules of hermeneutics that he uses interpreting, or interpreting, as they say here in the Wabash Valley, <laughs> writings of legal significance, such as the Constitution of the United States. And when you learn about how to interpret the Bible, the rules are all the same, and their courses people have been teaching for years on hermeneutics named after the Greek god Hermes, the message carrier, carried, carrying, carry, carrier. Carrier. Yeah, thank you, because <laughs> my words are clear. They just get jumbled up when they fall. Yeah. 
put my brain onto my teeth and then they fall out long. But <laughs> what you get for talking for two hours, I guess. But yeah. uh, those rules, let me summarize that and then I'll take it later. The rules Justice Scalia puts there, all the rules you can compound that people say are the rules for the proper interpretation of the Bible, which are the same as the ones Justice Scalia propounds, those rules you can find examples of them in the Bible. And if you're interested in reading the history of Christian hermeneutics of the Bible, uh, get a book by Milton Terry. Milton Terry, it's about seven, right at 750 pages long, and he covers all the rules plus the history of the rules of God's people in interpreting, interpreting, as they say here, the writings of legal significance, uh, of which the Bible is the foremost writing of legal significance in the world. All of it's, it's the will of God, the will of the sovereign, and that's right. writing, that's all. Uh, one more comment, and then I'll quit. You could, and then I'll let you uh, comment. I want to simplify this. All of the r- rules of hermeneutics, of interpretation, of writing, of legal significance, the Bible summarizes in two rules in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And here they are. You can categorize every one of Scalia's rules under these two rules. Number one, do not add anything to what God said in the Bible. Do not add anything to the words of the Bible. Number two, do not subtract anything, not the slightest thing, from the words of the Bible. This is what Jesus Christ meant when he said on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Scripture cannot be broken. It can't be pulled apart in any way. It can't be separated. And I did not come to do away with any of God's law, the expression of his will. I came to establish it. And that's why we have these rules. But these rules can be, just ask yourself, am I adding anything to this? Am I taking anything away from it? That's all you have to ask to know you're staying within the proper rules the Bible has given. Somebody was trying to say something. Go ahead. Merka, Merka. I was just just asking for the name of the book again, please. The name of the book is Biblical Hermeneutics. Okay. Biblical Hermeneutics. And if you try to, if you try to spell hermeneutics, uh, it'll, <laughs> you'll mess it up. It's not. It's time, not. Right? No, it's not hard. Yeah, but but, but the author, hard. the author yeah. is Milton Terry, T E R R Y. Thank you, Spencer. Mil- I can Milton Spencer Terry. It's in the RogerSalesDotChatango.com. Thank you, Mer. And just wanted to say hi to Ken. Nice to hear your voice. Yep. Good show today. Unexpected, totally spontaneous, folks. The uh, the joys of doing a show with Brent Winters. I want to. It's, read- it's the gift that keeps on giving, Brent. Oh, that's kind. I want to read something for people to think about this week. It's a it's a paragraph. Right, now listen to this, then I'll tell you who wrote it, and you'll know who it is. Here it is. He's not joking, and he's not trying to be ostentatious or bloviating. He's being very matter-of-fact from his experience and learning. Here it is. Stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest evil. It can be exposed and, if need be, prevented by use of force. Evil always carries within itself 
the germ of its own. Damn. Drop that down a little, Paul. Evil always carries within itself the germ of its own subversion in that it leaves behind in human beings at least a sense of unease. Against stupidity, we are defenseless. Neither protest nor the use of force accomplishes anything here. Reasons fall on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed. In such moments, the stupid person even becomes critical. And when facts are irrefutable, they are just pushed aside as inconsequential, as incidental. In all this, the stupid person, in contrast to the malicious one, is utterly self-satisfied and being easily irritated becomes dangerous by going on the attack. For that reason, greater caution is called for when dealing with the stupid person than with the malicious one. Never again will we try to persuade the stupid person with reasons, for it is senseless and dangerous. Uh, this is Brent Allen Winters, CommonLawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com, and Roger Sales, Radio, Radio Ramp, Radio Ranch. Who, who said, who wrote that? Teddy Roosevelt? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Teddy De- Roosevelt, are you kidding? That guy. Diedrich, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, Diedrich somebody. Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Was that uh, Daryl? Yeah. Okay, yeah. now one more. I'm going to add one quote to this. Indeed, I'm reading from the Winterized Version because I quote Bonhoeffer here. And John Wayne, indeed, adds John Wayne, life is hard, and it's even harder if you're stupid. Right. 